great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. I'm Chelsea Fairless. Welcome back, Chelsea. Thank you. I'm so well rested. Really? Mm-hmm. That a uh, humbled air? Yep, just hanging out at my parents' house, doing nothing. It's great. How was Francis Quito, your dog? He was good. He was so cute. It was so cute to see him like running around in, in actual grass instead of the uh, modernist AstroTurf Teletubbies set that is the West Hollywood dog park. All you sent me was one video of him trying to eat your Skims uh, sandal, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, I uh, I bought those those Skims fluffy slides. Sorry to, to trigger the people that turned off the episode the second we start talking, talking about, about the Kardashians. Kardashians. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I missed you. I missed you, too, and we have so much stuff to talk about because it's been two weeks since we've done, like, a proper news episode. And there was a bunch of Sex in the City stuff, which we covered on the account, but now we'll we'll do a little more of a deeper dive. First and foremost, contrary to previous reporting from the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists at Page Six, <laughs> Chris Noth will, in fact, appear in the reboot. It has been announced. Big is back, baby. Michael Patrick King said, how could we ever do a new chapter of the Sex and the City story without our Mr. Big? Which I had no doubt that he was going to be in the series, but the question is for how long, right? Well, yeah, because unlike SJP, Kristen, Cynthia, and most recently Sarah Ramirez, it hasn't been announced that he's been a, that he is going to be a series regular, which typically connotes that a cast member will do a significant number of episodes. So that leads me to believe that he will be on the show, but he will be phased out early. And according to a rumor that I think started on Dumois, the prevailing theory slash storyline is that he will be arrested for financial crimes. I love this. It's so perfect because, you know, as the audience, we have no idea how Mr. Big has accumulated all of this wealth. Right. It's also because seemingly the writers changed it mid-series. Well, yeah, the writers don't even know how he has this much money. Yeah. In the first episode when he's introduced, Samantha describes him as a younger Donald Trump, which would give you the impression that he works in real estate. But it seems like as the seasons go on, they make him this kind of nebulous hedge fund guy, question mark? Yeah, because when Carrie and Big's engagement announcement appears in page six, He's described as a... The ultimate single gal, Carrie Bradshaw, will be married in Manolo's to New York financier John James Preston come fall. Which is an entirely different job, as I understand it. They just want you to understand he's got a lot of money. But you know, Lauren, I couldn't help but wonder, <laughs> was the vineyard a money laundering Scheme? enterprise? Yeah, exactly. Like Brad and Angelina. I'm not saying they're money launderers, but like, yeah, rich yeah. people love to buy vineyards. Yeah, and it seems like it could be an ideal way to just he's like, wash some money. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And he's like Trump. One year he's like, I lost $90 million on this vineyard. I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll talk about the Friends reunion in a, in a little bit, but the problem with restarting a series that ended kind of perfectly, which was Big and Carrie getting together, is to keep the drama going, you have to keep pulling them apart in different ways. 
And there was something very unsatisfying about him dying, although very Elizabeth Gilbert, right, author of Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, there is something comically satisfying about him being arrested for financial crimes. And then that allows the story to sort of breathe. It gives reason for her to move back into the apartment. Right. Well, also, it's like, what could they do that wouldn't be a rehashing of Sex in the City 2? They can't have her cheat on him with Aiden again. What are they going to like have a fight because he tries to install a television in the bathroom? Like, where does it go? And, you know, as an audience, we are obviously addicted to the drama of this pair. Again, the storyline I keep pushing is a sort of high fidelity thing. That would be also a great incentive for her to go back through her life and be like, how did I exactly end up here? Yeah. They were going to have to announce it anyway because they're about to start shooting. So we're going to get paparazzi photos, I imagine, quite like when the films were shooting. So we're, you know, we were going to see him getting hauled than... off to jail. <laughs> well, that's what I keep thinking. Do you remember when they shot the first film? You know, they put Samantha, they put Kim Cattrall in a wedding dress to make it seem like, oh, maybe Samantha's the one that's getting married. And it's like, no, we we know who's getting married in this film. I'm sure they're going to have to do those sort of things. We'll see. It could not be this at all, but I hope it is. Dumois telling a false rumor? Well, that would be the best way to throw people off, not just staging these photo ops, but just leaking like... Fake storylines. Fake storylines to Dumois just so that they circulate and people talk about them like we're doing now. In other Sex in the City news, it was recently announced that our mother, Patricia Field, will not be costuming the reboot. Uh, yeah, in her steed will be her longtime collaborator, Molly Rogers, who will step in as lead costume designer. Rogers has previously worked under Pat on several projects, including Sex in the City, the series, as well as the films and the Devil Wars Prada. But there's a reason that Pat isn't doing this, or at least there's one reason that we know of, which is that she is attached to the second season of Emily in Paris. Which is currently filming. I mean, we did a post, which we, the post that we did showed a tweet by Mario Abed that said, Patricia Field choosing not to return to Sex in the City, the Sex in the City reboot in order to focus on Emily Paris season two is a choice. It is. Which led to a, a lot of back and forth in the comment section. But I think logically she was already committed to, I mean, this series, I'm sure talks about it have been going on since the fall, but she already would have been on pre-production for Emily in Paris. No matter what we think of the costumes, it is a huge undertaking, and she's currently in Paris shooting. There's not really a way she can do both. It's going to be fine, guys. It's really not that big of a deal. I don't think there's going to be too many stylistic flourishes that we won't see coming. Maybe we'll finally see Miranda in a suit, because that was always Patricia's thing, was getting the Miranda character out of the suiting and into more heteronormative femme looks. I mean, yeah, stylistically, I don't think it's going to be a huge departure from what we've seen before, although I imagine that it will be a little more toned down than the films, which were crazy and over the top. You know, or it could not be. I mean, maybe Carrie will be recording podcasts and ball gowns. Who knows? Do you think Carrie will be an off-white? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, Emily in Paris is an off-white, so Carrie has to be an off-white. 
Um, in other news, yeah, I see in this document you have something that just says Candace Bushnell's one woman show. What, yeah, what is this? So our girl Candace has a one woman show that is opening later this month. It's called "Is There Still Sex in the City," which is also the title of her latest book. She will be discussing sex, feminism, and spilling the tea about you know sex in the city and the real life experiences that inspired it. I'm excited. I feel like anyone that's listening to this podcast probably knows that the series Sex and the City is based on Candace's book, Sex and the City, which was based on her columns. Carrie Bradshaw is a version of Candace. Her column, which was also called Sex Sex and the the City. City. Yeah. So the show is opening at the Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania. And a lot of people have been asking me why there, what is up with that? Because Bucks County is like a two, three hour drive from New York. I mean, I can't confirm this, but I suspect that she is trying out the material out of town which is like a very common practice in theater you either go to Bucks County you go to Boston you go to Chicago you get feedback from the audience because you know the New York audiences are too mean and the critics are mean and it's just good to see how things land they're warm in Bucks County yeah so I mean I imagine that it is going to be on or off Broadway in New York York at some point later this year but and don't worry guys we'll be there of course we'll be there and also if anyone we can't go to Bucks County unfortunately but if anyone does go please let us know how it is give us the tea oh but there's something really funny about this actually who weekly also discussed Candace's show at Bucks County and they mentioned that you can't buy a single ticket like you can only buy tickets in pairs you know, above, which does seem like discrimination against the single gal, right? Well, I was going to say, this does seem like something out of Sex and the City. Yeah, totally. Do you think Carrie will be trying to go to a Broadway show and <laughs> and can't buy a single ticket? Uh, she has to go in a pair. It's really funny. So also another thing that transpired and blew up while uh, you were gone would be Olivia Rodrigo's Sour album. Yes. I mean, did we... I just sound like the oldest person being like <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo's Sour album? Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about her on the pod because I didn't want to age myself unnecessarily, but she's gotten too popular. Oh, get ready for the geriatric millennial talk. As a proud geriatric millennial, you're not, though. I'm a middle-aged millennial. You missed the cutoff. Although I think that, I think that there should be a word for like developing early from a culture consumption standpoint because you mean like us yeah because I think that you are probably like a geriatric millennial at heart because I think you were probably consuming culture at like a inappropriately young age you know (laughs) that's the nicest way to be like your parents made sure that the tv was your babysitter (laughs) no no I'm not saying that no disrespect Kathy and Andy I'm just saying I think that we're kind of on the same level for sure even though I'm older than you yeah it should be explained there's a four-year age difference between Chelsea and myself yeah Even beyond that, our aesthetics are so rooted in Gen X culture. Yeah. So there's also that. Yeah, that was it for us. That was like all we cared about was Gen X stuff. 
Which does intersect with Olivia Rodrigo's general aesthetic. It's funny because I had obviously heard Driver's License. I saw the music video for Good For You. I watched her Saturday Night Live appearance. But I didn't really know anything about her beyond that. And in preparing to talk about it on the podcast, I really got into it. Like I'm like an Olivia Rodrigo scholar at this point. Do you want to know like what her deal is? Uh, yeah. Or do I, you know what her deal is? I started to read a couple sentences of a New Yorker profile on her. And then I don't know. I got I got an email or something and I never finished it. But she comes from High School Musical, The Musical. High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, which is a Disney Plus show, not to be confused with Disney, that is a reboot of the High School Musical franchise, but it's meta. In the show, they are staging a musical of High School Musical and they're aware of the original High School musical like it was filmed in the high school that they go to chelsea be honest did you watch episodes of high school musical the musical the series no i didn't i haven't gotten that dark with it yet so for those who can't see chelsea just has like a big board with like red strings (laughs) attached it's like matthew mcconaughey and true detective season one shit So season one of this show happens. It is popular. They ask her to write and record a song for the soundtrack and it becomes the song that catches on. And that song is called All I Want. And that kind of had a viral TikTok moment that I completely missed out on because we're old. I, we're old. We, you know, I barely look at TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. But reportedly, she was in a relationship with her co-star Joshua, Joshua Bassett. Oh, Bassett! There we go. I was who, like Joshua Barrett. Who Driver's License is written about? Correct. It's also inferred that Joshua Bassett has left her and hooked up with Sabrina Carpenter. Sabrina Carpenter, who is another Disney person. Although at 21 years old, she's kind of like the old hag of this teen drama. I mean, because she is older than them. And we mean old hag in the most respectful fourth wave feminism way. The least ageist uh, (laughs) way possible. So Driver's License comes out. It's a smash hit instantly, like breaking streaming records. It's all over TikTok, etc. Then Joshua drops a diss track. I forget what it's called. It then, doesn't matter. Then the week after, Sabrina drops a diss track, which again is like kind of sad given her age and everything. <laughs> So not to be confused with us talking about literal teenagers. That's not sad. Not sad at all. All this happens. It blows up. They rush out an album, which is sour, uh, which came out a couple of weeks ago. But for rushing out an album, it's good. I know. I went into this. Not that I went into this wanting to dislike it. I guess I went into it assuming that I wouldn't like it. And there's a lot of songs on this album that are certainly very redundant that I'm sort of less interested in. Those are the driver's license type songs. You know, the breakup songs that feel very Lord Taylor Swift inspired that vibe. Right. But then there's a few songs on the record, the opening track, Brutal, Good For You, the single, and another song that reminded me of a very specific, I want to call it like a micro genre of music, which is pop rock songs by female fronted bands 
in early 2000s teen films. Late 90s, early 2000s. That's that's what I was going to yeah. say is I think why geriatric millennials like yourself and middle-aged millennials like myself love this album because it's what was missing when we were teenagers. Again, we idolized. Well, it wasn't missing when we were teenagers. I feel like this was everywhere when we were teenagers, but it just kind of like this genre of music hasn't really caught on in a big way with the exception of maybe like a skater boy by Avril Lavigne sort of situation but right that pop punk thing but this is more the ska influence girl bands like a letters to cleo when I think about this, again, micro genre, I think about Lindsay Lohan's band in the Freaky Friday remake. I think about Josie and the Pussycats, the live action version, which was a fake girl band that was... um, Didn't Letters to Cleo do the music? They did do the music, even though it was coming out of like Rachel Lee Cook and Tara Tara Reid and Rosario Can you imagine being the guitarist for Letters to Cleo and watching Tara Reid pantomime your chords? in. But I feel like Letters to Cleo are so instrumental in this genre because they also performed as themselves in 10 Things I Hate About about You. you. Yeah. And these are all films that I don't think had come out. I think Olivia Rodrigo was born in 2001. It's, it's It's before her time. Also, the Donnas in Jawbreaker. For sure. I mean, what we're seeing is the collapsing of previously opposing aesthetics into each other. Like, Hilary Duff didn't know who PJ Harvey was. Olivia Rodrigo knows who PJ Harvey is. Do we know that for a fact? I'm just saying the music Hilary Duff created, you can't put a lineage to like a Tori Amos or a PJ Harvey or anything like that. Yeah, that's true. So while this album is very Lord, very Taylor Swift, you do in these pop rock songs here and there just sort of hear glimpses of like oh that kind of sounds like a Kathleen Hanna vocal or that sounds like the bridge in Good For You which has been haunting me as you know. Chelsea before she left had to pick something up at my place and like walked in like a woman possessed and she was like I know it's something she was like playing brutal for me. She was like, I know it's referencing some PJ Harvey song. I can't figure out No I wasn't. It's not brutal. It's I was playing, it's the bridge in Good For You. The vocal inflections say PJ Harvey. The use of repetition is very, just like a specifically PJ Harvey thing. So I was convinced that that this is similar to a bridge that was in a PJ Harvey song on her seminal breakup album, Rid Of Me. I mean, that's actually an interesting contrast because PJ Harvey's Rid Of Me makes Olivia Rodrigo sour sound like baby shark that is a breakup album that is the sound of someone like in a mental state that is similar to Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction when she was like boiling the rabbit like that's the vibe of that album yeah we did growing up get different shades of breakup albums so there was as you said PJ Harvey's Rid of Me there's Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill yeah which is a real bummer when you realize that her talking about giving a guy head in a theater is probably written about Dave Cooley from Full House and then uh, No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom which is about her breakup with the bassist Tony Canal. Right and there are elements of this album that actually remind me more of Return to Saturn era No Doubt. Right. So I was in my car driving home yesterday and I went to put on PJ Harvey's album Rid of Me. You know I was doing it via audio because I was driving and um, Nelly's Ride With Me comes on. (laughs) 
And I was like, okay, this is a bop. I'm listening to this first. But it, it made me think that I could do a, a fun little quiz for you. Oh, no. Which is called Rid of Me or Ride With Me. I have five lyrics here. Okay. And I want you to tell me if they are from Rid of Me or Ride With Me. Okay. So here's the first one. If you want to go and get high with me, smoke a L in the back of the Benz. Oh, why must I feel this way? That's Nelly. Yes, correct. But do you know that when I was in junior high, I had to listen to Nelly all the time because my mother loved that album, bought that CD, and every time she would pick me up, she would play all of that. Country Grammar, Country Cry Grammar with me, is e- the best. E.I. Okay, second lyric. Do me like you should, fuck me good, suck me good. That's also Nelly. <laughs> Ride <Okay>. with me. <laughs> correct. Night and day, I breathe, ha ha, a hey. That's PJ Harvey. Correct. Okay. I'll make you lick my injuries. I'm going to twist your head off, see. I mean, I feel like I should say Nelly to make it interesting, <laughs> but it's PJ Harvey. Okay, last one. Last okay. one. See if you can get five out of five. Can I make it damn right? I'll be on the next flight, paying cash, first class, sitting next to Vanna White. What would you give if that was a PJ Harvey lyric? Um, it's Nelly. Again, I can't. Five for five. You did it. I probably also have 10,000 hours in Nelly's country grammar because I had to listen to it for seven years straight in my mother's car. Love that. Excellent taste, Kathy. Okay, that was a digression. Long story short, after listening to Rid of Me, I was like, I'm not clinically depressed anymore. I can't be listening to full PJ Harvey albums in my car. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's it's not, not healthy. So if anyone knows what this sounds like, please let me know. Because like I said, I can't do that full catalog right now. I'm hoping it's from Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. Well, it's, it's vaguely reminiscent of The Bridge and This Is Love. Again, the repetition of it. Right. But it's not that it's something i believe it to be something more specific but yeah for the four people who have not listened to this olivia rodrigo album it's basically if jagged little pill was filtered through the 2001 josie and the pussycat soundtrack (laughs) yeah one thing i do resent about the olivia rodrigo discourse is these ageist memes (laughs) jesus that are like millennials listening to Olivia Rodrigo and it's like the Pen15 girls or it's like Jamie Lee Curtis in Freaky Friday dressed in some punk outfit. And it's like... To be fair, not wrong. But no, it's like we don't need to cosplay as how we dressed as teenagers. That's like, true. That's what you're doing. Except for we bought our plaid schoolgirl skirts at thrift stores as you should instead of just like getting them from Dolls Kill or like wherever people are getting this stuff kids these days god we're like so primed to be on the reboot of behind the music just talking oh about... my god dreams we'd also be perfect for the reboot of uh, best week ever i mean that's basically what we're doing wow we've officially transitioned from mtv to vh1 you're giving me major michael ian black energy <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're mo rocca and i'm michael ian black yeah you're probably mo rocca <laughs> anyway so speaking of aging pop song stresses. Taylor Swift has been cast in David O. Russell's new star-studded film. 
Yes, her perfect role in Cats, see what I did there, uh, did not dissuade her from acting. So her role, like the film's plot, is being kept under wraps, but the 11-time Grammy winner will join Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington in the film. I don't really know how to feel about this because, you know, as you mentioned, Taylor Swift's taste in film roles has not been excellent. She was also in, like, one of those Valentine's Day movies, right? How could I forget that? I mean, I forgot. I don't even know which. I'm like, is it New Year's Eve? Is it, you know. Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Like, who the fuck knows? Yeah. So there's that. But also it's like David O. Russell as a filmmaker has made such a little impact on me. Like. I've, I don't think I've seen, like, I've, I've never seen American Hustle, so I can't speak to that, but I have seen I Heart Huckabees. I've seen, what was the Bradley Cooper and Silver Lines? I saw that, and I think I saw another one with Jennifer Lawrence. Joy. Again, I have no, they were whatever. So for those who uh, just clued into David O. Russell's career circa Silver Lang's playbook, you probably missed that he was effectively in director's jail for, among other things, verbally abusing Lily Tomlin, getting into a fist fight with George Clooney, possibly putting Christopher Nolan in a headlock, and making Amy Adams cry. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so... We have to back it up to Lily Tomlin. When you put this in the doc, I could immediately (laughs) tell why it was there, and I knew it wasn't just because of Taylor Swift. Uh, Yes. The casting of Taylor Swift, even though this film has, is already in production and possibly even wrapped, has, you know, dredged up David O. Russell's less than stellar behavior, the most prominent of which is probably, yes, this Lily Tomlin incident from I Heart Huckabees, which to me is the first viral video I remember watching on the internet. Totally. And I, I feel that you would appreciate that I went to a conversation between John Waters and Isabelle Huppert at Lincoln Center. Like, I don't know seven years ago, something like that. And he mentioned that he felt that her best performance was actually in this this viral video. So, so we should explain. So there's two, because when I went to go search for it, um, the first, which seemingly has been scrubbed from the internet, is Lily Tomlin screaming at David O. Russell with no context in a pickup truck with Dustin Hoffman and Isabelle Huppert, who are in the film I Heart Huckabees. Yeah, and she's basically saying, like, we've done this take 10,000 times. Like, fuck let you, us fuck go. Fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> and du- yeah, Dustin Hoffman is, like, trying to keep the peace, kind of. And then Isabelle Huppert is just, like, sitting there silently being her icy, glamorous self. And then... Well, I- after you've worked with Michael Haneke, it's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, this is like a Disney exactly. film. It is, like, yeah. It's like, this is like a Disney Plus uh, compared to <laughs> <laughs> the previous to directors the that she's I've worked seen. with. Yeah. But what's funny about the Isabelle Huppert in this is what John Waters was obsessed with is she flips down the, what do you call that in a car? The visor. The visor. She flips down, like in the middle of the screaming, she flips down the visor, pulls out a lipstick, and then starts touching up her makeup while these people are just like screaming in her face. It's actually brilliant. Yeah, it's a real shame that you truly cannot find this anywhere on the internet. So when I went back to try to find this, to hopefully put it in the episode, what I came across is a second clip that I had never seen before of David O. Russell fully going nuclear on Lily Tomlin. And it seems to be a scene where it's like a tense but like relatively calm discussion about blocking. And she 
So I don't know what which incident happened first. Maybe the the first one we just outlined because she's so calm and it just makes her him more and more upset. And among other things, he calls her a cunt. But it's the time. <laughs> yeah, he seems like he's not seems a chill unhinged. Person. Again, it's a very disturbing video, but there is some hilarity in it, which is it's some kind of school set. So he's coming from behind the camera yelling at her on set. And then she's like, whatever, whatever. He walks back off. Then he comes back around through a door on the set to start screaming at her more. What is it? Just like a tiny child-sized <laughs> yeah. door or something? And I remember at the time when that video came out, everyone was like, how crazy is Lily Tomlin? No, I was always on Lily Tomlin's side. It's like, I feel the same kinship with Shelley Duvall Ooh. in that video where uh, Stanley Kubrick is screaming at her. Yeah, it's... Uh... To, to invoke Grimes, male directors yelling at women is not a vibe. <laughs> After these things, and also, you know, his movie's not making money, he was put in director's jail, never to be seen again until, do you know who broke him out of director's jail? Mark Wahlberg, who was oh. in I Heart Huckabees. And when Darren Aronofsky fell out of The Fighter, he begged David O. Russell to come direct. And then that was an Oscar-nominated film, and then he did Silver Lang's Playbook. Silver Lang's Playbook produced by Harvey Weinstein. Mm. It all connects, guys. And now he's going to inflict this Taylor Swift movie upon us. Oh. Well, he's going to hopefully not inflict his abuse on Taylor Swift. Yeah. Taylor Swift is not going to stand for that. <gasps> Could you imagine if, she, if he yelled the at her? The way that she... she fucked the radio host that grabbed her ass. <laughs> like, she's she's not letting shit slide. Well, no, that's what I was thinking. Could you imagine if he yelled at her and she wrote a whole album about it? Yeah. Maybe she's like, you know what? I'm in a stable relationship. I need some material. <laughs> uh... Swifties, please don't fuck us in the comments about this. We're just having fun. No. Also, I am one of you, believe it or not. Oh, I forgot to mention, Taylor Swift actually does have a songwriting credit on Olivia. Ugh, I can't say her fucking name. Olivia Rodrigo. Olivia Rodrigo's album. Yes, she samples a like a piano chord from her song New Year's Day, which was the closer from Reputation. There's nothing artistic about this sample. It's not the way like Joni Mitchell is sampling Jingle Bells and River, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the way that like Kid Rock is sampling Sweet Home Alabama in his timeless summer bop all summer long. <laughs> Any more examples? No, those are just the two that came to mind first. But as we previously explained, you do not want to run afoul of Taylor Swift. No. Do you want to talk about the Friends reunion or no? <sighs> Well, didn't we say we were going to talk about it like earlier in the show? So now aren't we forced to? Let's. I think we can do it briefly. Okay. Well... I wasn't going to watch it because a thumbnail I saw of Matthew Perry bummed me out so fucking much. But then <laughs> so this one, rude. I, he was like my crush. Like he and Brendan Fraser and like maybe a little bit of Val Kilmer. Those were my crushes. See, I related to him too much to have a crush on him. Like well, <laughs> or his character Chandler specifically. Oh yeah. No, we're two Chandlers. I'm a Chandler with a Monica rising. Yeah. And I guess I'm a, well, what do you think my rising is? Oh, Phoebe. Yeah, I think so too. Absolutely. Look, I don't find the need to be hypercritical of the Friends reunion. Like, it is what it is. It's not exactly... The television reunion isn't exactly a highbrow medium. I guess we have the answer to what a celebrity high school reunion would look like. <laughs> yeah. 
But it was interesting for me because I watched Friends when it was on the air. I feel like I came in like season two or three or something. Which are the best seasons. I mean, it, it went all over the place and they eventually became caricatures of themselves. But those first few seasons are really solid. Yeah, I mean, but I haven't watched it since. I have never seen an episode of Friends twice. It's Ooh. not something that I revisited, and it's not something that I really closely related to, I think because I related to Seinfeld more. Like, that that was, like, the world that I related to. And then when Sex and the City came out, I was like, oh, no, it's this. Like, it's this, this is what it is. Yeah. Well, I read that they were offered a million dollars to appear in the reunion, and they turned it down. And, like, for a brief second, I was like, oh, my God, that's so nice that they know how much joy this has brought people, and they're just going to do it. And then the next sentence was they did it for $2.5 I was like, oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. I'm not, like, offended by that. Gen Z is obsessed with the shit, somehow. That's why I was referencing it when we were talking about Sex in the City. Lisa Kudrow said this thing when I think James Corden was asking about would there be a kind of reboot or limited series or something, and she made this point that they ended it so well and so perfectly for each character. Each character was set up with their person and what their future life was going to be that in order to make it dramatic, you would have to unspool so much stuff that it would kind of ruin the ending yeah we don't want like monica and chandler to have a contentious divorce it did feel like a a, a subtweet not that i think she meant it that way but a subtweet for the sex in the city one film <laughs> yeah totally where it's like okay where we left these characters where they're together got it now they're getting married and he leaves her at the altar <laughs> james corden is like haunting my media he is like popping up in places where he has no business to be like Gucci campaigns, Weight Watchers, for fuck's sake, and now this. I'm sorry, WW, they rebranded? Oh, yeah, WW, you're right. WW, it's crazy. I mean, he was fine, whatever. This doesn't really require hard journalism. The fashion show with actual celebrities was nice. Oh, I loved that. That was so cute. They had models like Cara Delevingne, Cindy Crawford, celebs like Justin Bieber modeling iconic costumes from the show. And then they had Matt LeBlanc modeling Chandler's clothes because there was an episode that I completely forgot about where he wore all of Chandler's clothes. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is very much like that Balenciaga collection <laughs> from a while back. <laughs> Gaga was there. Ugh. I just Gaga was like at a 10.5 singing smelly cat with Lisa Kudrow it's like this song does not call for this well you've always made this point about Lady Gaga that really she was meant to be in like a regional touring company of Beauty and the Beast or something I mean that's such a rude thing I actually do like Lady Gaga but yeah it's more like I think Lady Gaga she's got theater kid energy she's got wicked energy like wicked the musical energy the kid that has just like wicked posters all over their bed Room. Like, that's how I envision Lady Gaga. John Travolta would see her and go, the wickedly talented <laughs> Lady Gaga. But yeah, I think that things like that made it cute. But then I was like, what the fuck, Malala's here? Oh, <laughs> Malala I survived being shot in the head only to have to be paraded out for the Friends reunion. Um, do you feel like, well, if you're Chandler, is Tat your Monica? Do you remember that gay couple that was, that was featured? Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, she's like so, she's more of a Rachel. Yeah, with a Joey. With a Joey. With yeah. a Joey rise. Or actually, maybe she's a Joey with a Rachel. Oh, it's kind of hard to say. She's kind of like 50-50. 
Matt LeBlanc. Remember how hot he was? Matt LeBlanc? Oh, when they showed younger photos of him, I was like, God damn. I gagged. Like, I did not even realize that he was that hot. Do you remember when you showed Tat Swingers and she was like, wait, I don't know. I don't. I didn't know that Vince Vaughn used to be hot. And we were like, oh, yes, for two years between like 95. Well, up until this, his appearance on Sex and the City. Yeah. He had a good five year run. Yeah. Of being just like extremely, extremely good looking. I thought Matt LeBlanc looked the most normal. He looked like every, but maybe that's because he looks like every Italian uncle that I know. Yeah, he's, he's aged normally, whereas Jennifer Aniston has been doing Death Becomes Her shit, I'm assuming. It shows how different the aging standards for men and women are. Although Lisa Kudrow looks like she's done nothing to her face, and she looks great. Yeah, she did look great. I'm not going to allude to what maybe some of these men have gotten done, but I don't know if men in their 50s should be getting fillers. Yeah. Just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It bummed me out so much that I went back and watched my favorite terrible rom-com that Matthew Perry is in called Fools Rush In. Right, yeah. Which is part of a wonderful trope in the 90s of rom-coms having the most insane premises. And yeah. th- this one is he has a one Like the truth about cats and dogs. Or Mrs. Winterborn, which is like, <laughs> Ricky Lake pretends to be, Ricky Lake. We could do a full, full ep on Mrs. Winterborn if we ever have a Patreon. Oh, and to start doing film episodes? Yeah. yeah. I could go in. Well, you know what? We're doing that. That's just for us, guys. I don't care. Um, no, Fool's Rush in is he has a one night stand with Selma Hayek. She gets pregnant, shows up three months later. She's like, look, just meet my parents once so I can say when I tell them I'm pregnant, like that was the guy. Right. Uh, he falls in love with her, they get married, and then they have fights because they don't know each other. And then he's working too much and she something happens with the baby where she goes to the hospital and she's like, I lost the kid, go back to New York. But she didn't lose the kid. <laughs> she's still pregnant. That's some dark, sick, twisted Mrs. Winterborn shit. Yes. Speaking of twisted pregnancy movies with implausible premises, Hush. Have you thought about that in a minute? The what one with Gwyneth Paltrow <gasps> and Jessica Lange is like her um, yeah. mother-in-law trying to steal her unborn baby. Oh my God. Yeah, maybe that's a spinoff episode. It has nothing to do with fashion, but just like insane pregnancy plot films yeah. from the 90s. Ooh, we could also do, um, what's that truly insane French one with Beatrice Dahl? Inside. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. That's like the apex of the womb raider genre. Anyway, going back to the Friends reunion, especially juxtaposed with another Warner Brothers asset, which would be Sex and the City. In this era where we're rebooting and sequelizing television now, where we used to do that with movies, I don't know if we need these saccharine trips down memory lane. Yeah. I don't know if the Yeah, but we still, we still watched it and like, I enjoyed it, right? That was like two hours of my life and I'm like, I feel okay about that, you know? <laughs> Not like when I watch 50 episodes of Emily in Paris in a row and I feel dirty now. However, Darren Star, we love to be in the season three writer's room. <laughs> Genuinely. Yeah. So a few days ago, news broke that crocheting girl boss Emporium Etsy is buying Gen Z's favorite digital flea market, Depop, for $1.6 billion. Who knew they had $1.6 billion? And they're making that money off the backs of people selling bridesmaid gifts. Gloves, yeah. Yeah, and like little crocheted live, laugh, love shit. So the idea is that they'll help Depop scale up, potentially give Etsy a bigger Gen Z market share, and of course, disrupt consumers want or need to ever go back to traditional retail shopping. Yeah. 
So if Etsy is for us geriatric millennials, Depop is like for people exclusively born after 9-11. Depop has 30 million registered users over 150 countries. 90% are under the age of 26. Wow. So I feel like if Etsy is a marketplace, Depop is a highly art-directed social network. Well, Etsy and Depop both have like highly specific aesthetics that, that that have become associated with these brands, which never happened for like an eBay, for example. Yeah, but Etsy is multifaceted. There are people who are actual artisans that make things. Like my first light in this house was made by someone who was an Etsy seller. There's vintage... I buy vintage through Etsy because it's more chill than eBay. I can't be bothered to like bid on something and then have to follow up. And then even if I win the thing, I like forget to pay for it. It's like a whole thing. Yes. And also I've noticed just perusing Depop for Gen Z, everything is vintage and vintage is thrifting. Like I was watching a TikTok where someone talked about going to Stella Dallas and referred to it as thrifting. And I was like, no. No, finding an $80 JCPenney cardigan is not thrifting. No, it's not. It's so funny because it's, yeah, these kids are doing the same thing that I did as a teenager, which, I mean, I sold vintage clothes on, on eBay when I was in high school. The problem is, is that there's not a ton of incentive to, to have a perfect curated vintage store when people will literally just buy crap and pay whatever for it. I would be selling like members only jackets to people in New York for like, you know, over $100. Crazy shit. It's interesting how the secondhand market, especially a digital secondhand market, is being spoken about as if it's something new. I've noticed that a lot of the financial papers about this have been like, oh, the signals that the secondhand market is here to stay. But it's been that way ever since people started blogging their outfits in the mid-2000s. It's just accelerated now because everyone's a content creator and everything is content. And now what it is, is that once something is worn on camera, it's kind of rendered valueless or worthless to them. Yeah, which is terrible. Yeah, because on one hand, it's like, I do enjoy the sustainable aspect of this. I'm glad that people are buying vintage. I think more people should. But no, you're correct. It's creating a system that makes it easier to acquire and then quickly dispose of clothing. Yeah, I mean, the secondhand market provides a seemingly easy, vaguely more economical and like supposedly more sustainable solution. Yeah. The global data statistics uh, has said that the United States-based secondhand market is projected to expand 39% between 2019 and 2024, reaching a $64 billion industry. Wow. Uh, And it's going to be twice the size of the fast fashion industry on a global basis. That's crazy. Yes. While retail is going to shrink by 15% over that same time period. So my question is, secondhand clothing isn't a renewable resource. It just feels that way because we have so much clothing waste. Right. But if you're discouraging retail buyers from buying, how are they going to get bored and then resell their stuff or dump it in a thrift store for some 15-year-old to find and then charge $60 for? (laughs) I sent you a text when you were gone and it just said, this is my problem with Depop. And it was someone that was selling, as they said, uh, vintage Gucci oval glasses, oval-shaped glasses. And they were like, you know, the oval shape as most prominently seen on Kurt Cobain. And I was like, it's Jackie O-shaped glasses. How do you not know this? 
I feel like the 1960s is the 17th century to like a 15 year old. You know what I mean? It's so, did they even have electricity? Were they wearing like corsets? By the way, guys, this is the real old man yelling at the sky episode. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Shall we move on to the fast fashion collab that literally no one saw coming? Yeah, when I first saw it, I thought I must be mistaken because there's no way that this was possible. It's really wild. So I was just looking at Zara the other day, as I do, and I saw that they have done a collection with Purple Magazine. So Purple has been around for a really long time. It is a independent biannual fashion magazine. It came out, I think, in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. In its original incarnation, it was very much an anti-fashion magazine. It wasn't about celebrities. Started by Olivier Zom. Yeah, they didn't even have real models. It was like everything was modeled by real people for the most part. And their covers were very arty. It would be an illustration or a landscape or the opposite of what you would associate with a traditional fashion magazine. And then like slowly in the, I don't know, 2005, something like that, it basically just turned into like Maxim for like arty people. Yeah. It became very dominated by Terry Richardson's photography and his aesthetic and like a porn aesthetic. There was celebs all of a the sudden. There were supermodels and it became a very different sort of vibe. Although it has some pretty amazing covers. I think about the Kate Moss cover where she's wearing Ballman and Mario Sorrenti is behind her on his knees naked for some reason taking the photograph while yeah. also being in the photograph. No, that was a good cover for sure. But my interest in it has dwindled in recent years my interest in pretty much all print media has dwindled in recent years which is probably why they're doing a collaboration with Zara well okay it's not just like a 10-piece collection I don't know how many pieces that it it is but it's it's more than 50 it is a substantial amount of products well it's hard to tell because the Zara website is so fucked (laughs) okay well that's another thing so Ezra Petronio who's the editor-in-chief of self-service which is Purple's main competitor in this sort of hip biannual fashion magazine world is the creative director at Zara. And with the Zara website, he has very much tried to sort of replicate the experience of print and the look of self-service magazine into this website. And it succeeds in certain areas, like certainly the e-com photography, and it, it is less successful in other areas, namely the user experience of navigating yes, it's, the site. It, it's successful in a way that the photography makes the clothing look either so good that you can't tell how shitty the quality is until it arrives on your doorstep, <laughs> or it's so obscured that you're like, I think that looks cute. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but it just seems like a really strange collab given this fact. And, and yeah, it's and it's also not what you would expect because for a fashion magazine, you would expect more merch type stuff with branding. You'd expect maybe like, oh, they'll, uh, they'll make a slip dress that has some like Mark Borthwick photo of a tree from like an early issue or something like that. But it's actually just full on just like fast fashion, very trendy clothes. And again, it was like I saw Purple Magazine and I was like, well, that can't possibly be the same. Like they would never stoop to this level is what you think at first. And it's the same typeface. Well, also, it's like this seems 10 years too late. It is. The thing that's crazy about it is that a lot of the pieces are very heavily branded, which would be fine if it just said Purple Magazine. But it says Purple X Zara. 
nobody is, wants that. Nobody wants that. No one that is a big enough fan of Purple Magazine or would want to partake in this would be caught dead in something that says Zara. Like Zara doesn't even make clothes that say Zara under normal circumstances. Why in this sort of attempt to court a very savvy, high fashion minded audience, the audience that cares about uh, Balenciaga and, and Margiela and designers like that, like why, why, why? I don't know. I'm sure these shirts are going to end up on Depop. Yeah. It's weird because as someone with, I don't know, 10, 15 back issues of Purple Magazine on my bookshelf and a wardrobe with a significant amount of Zara, I should be the target Target audience audience for this. We both should, yeah. We both should. And if not me, then who? Shall we, Kardash? Let's Kardash. Kardash, a holics anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. <laughs> so we we miss some things. <laughs> I think to kick this off, we really need to start with Caitlyn Jenner's truly iconic tweet, which says, "When elected governor of California, I will cancel cancel culture and wake up the woke." What I find interesting is cancel is in all caps. So it's like, I will cancel cancel culture, but woke or wake up is not capitalized. That's the only word. She had to can- capitalize it so it doesn't seem like a senior moment where she's like repeating words, oh. repeating the same word twice. You do you know? think that was a suggestion by Sophia? I do not know. but So yeah, it was it was readily mocked as it should be. Again, she has no platform on her website, so I have no idea how she intends to cancel cancel culture. Because you just I would, say you're canceled. I would like to know. Well, you know how Donald Trump on The Apprentice would fire people and said you're fired? Yeah. Caitlin's just going to be in Sacramento and go, you're canceled. But the, she doesn't want that. That's the opposite of what she wants. She is hates Caitlin it. aware that if she becomes governor, she's going to have to move to Sacramento? Or she's like, no, governor house in Malibu. Malibu. <laughs> she thinks she's just going to do Zooms from, uh, from Malibu. I'm going to cancel the governor's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she means by waking up the woke. Everyone just needs to move to Malibu. Oh, God. Uh, well, how Caitlin. much would you rather if her platform was just make Malibu great again? Um, how, how would you cancel cancel culture? Chelsea? I have no idea. I, but I'm interested to hear if anyone has any ideas around that. And how do you check on waking up all the woke people? <laughs> do you do like a wellness check? Like, hey, hey. <laughs> I saw you have a Bernie sticker on your car. Have you woken up? You just wake up the woke by um, singing Kylie Jenner's seminal hit, Rise and Shine. Oh, can we just... Uh, Rise and shine. Because we've used the phrase seminal a few times, and I think it's in our head because we used it to describe the Sex and the City episode, and then a follower DM'd us and was like, I don't mean any disrespect, but just to let you know, like, seminal has patriarch patriarchal <laughs> overtones, and I don't think that Miranda, Carrie... Charlotte and Samantha would really stand for that. I had a real like, am I a fucking moron moment? Because I was like, wait, does seminal come from semen? It's like, yeah, of course it comes from. I mean, I've never thought about it either. Ever. But but is semen inherently patriarchal? And also, if Sex and the City taught us anything, these ladies definitely stand for seminal. Yeah, they love semen. It's like their favorite thing. So yeah, it's a seminal show on multiple, <laughs> multiple level, levels, especially when you get into the, uh, the funky tasting spunk episode, a seminal episode. Yeah, it is a, a seminal performance by uh, Bobby Carnavali. 
All right. So I know we're now like a week late with this, but this was like one of the few episodes that you and I actually watched, which was a real doozy because it covers Chris's birthday, Kim's birthday, where they go to that private island, Kendall's birthday, which they don't show because she got busted for having a party on social media and was shamed for that. Did you also notice very briefly Caitlin's birthday? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also the news, which stunned us because we were very confident that Kim was going to pass her baby bar and she um, did not. And I like how they were like, oh, it's like you got, I'm totally making up these numbers, but it's like you got a uh, 584 like- when you should have gotten like a 656. And they were like, you practically passed. It's like, no, you didn't. That is like a significant margin. But then she's like, I don't know if I want to retake it or just wait till June. I couldn't understand. I'm like, why are they setting up this false storyline? Like, of course, she's not going to wait six months. And then I didn't even connect that, of course, she's about to go on her 40th birthday where Kanye gets her the Robert Kardashian hologram. Right. Which talks about how proud he is of her and her legal pursuits. I was like, oh, this is why they're setting up the whole thing of like, am I going to take the baby bar again? Well, also because they were like, she was literally like, God, give me a sign. And, and it comes in the form oh. of a burning bush, a.k.a. Robert Kardashian, telling her how proud of her he is. Chelsea, they reverse engineered that. That whole that whole scene where... Oh, you don't need to tell me, bitch. Or Kim and Chloe are driving around the streets of Hidden Hills being like, give me a sign. And suddenly there's like they're like that light's green that's a sign i should do it and then they're like oh but there's a stop sign (laughs) the other truly stunning moment of this episode that we want to talk about is that for chris's 65th birthday kim is getting her 65 outfits because chris feels a little uncomfortable in her body and can't find things that fit right i wonder why she feels uncomfortable in her body when she's literally dripping with these (laughs) these girls well also it's like this false thing of like you guys have access to the best designers the best marketing department the stylists what do you mean chris can't find clothing she feels comfortable in yeah it's like what what a savage thing to do to chris's stylist also my other favorite detail which anyone that's worked in the fashion industry will realize is kim at one point goes because she's like i'm gonna get these 65 outfits and i'm you know it's not good enough to have them on a rack i'm gonna put them on mannequins and she goes getting 65 mannequins costs half as much as the clothing yeah just renting them yeah i bet they were those crazy roosting mannequins that are like the top of the line expensive shit that they use in like museum shows and like the like chanel even like whatever mannequins are a thousand dollars it makes no sense that's the racket to chelsea (laughs) if this podcast thing doesn't work out we're starting a mannequin business but you know what though she did cut corners because she had initially also wanted these mannequins to have wigs that looked like Chris's hair. Right. But then she was like, okay, no, that's too expensive. It's like, girl, you're already 80% of the way there. What's the harm in throwing another 200K at this? 100K? You're already in so deep at this point. See, people who dislike the Kardashians need to watch the show to understand that even they have limits. And I guess getting 65 <laughs> wigs... <laughs> Do you think her hairstylist, Chris Appleton, I think that's his name, Chris Appleton, was like, no, no, (laughs) I cannot do this. Kim calls Tokyo Styles. Absolutely not. (laughs) Sorry. I know. What are the, uh, see, that's what I want. Hopefully we'll get that in the, in the Hulu show, which is like, what are the requests that they've gone to their chefs, their interior designers, where they're like, Jeff Lethem. Like, where's his line? (laughs) Seemingly he has no line. 
I don't think he has a line either. That that is in no way environmentally sound. The amount of roses and flowers he uses, right? No, no, of course not. Because for him, it's not about having like crazy arrangements. He's like, oh, I'm legit wallpapering this room in roses. Um, one thing we skipped over though when talking about Kim failing the baby bar was the fact that she has COVID or had COVID. Yeah, her she, and North had COVID. Uh, Saint, Saint Saint had COVID. She, yeah, so. She fails the bar, is getting Chris outfits, goes on her 40th birthday, and then the timeline gets a little hazy where it's like, I'm back, and then Saint didn't feel well, and then North didn't feel well, and oops, I got COVID. Yeah, they went out of their way to disconnect it from her birthday party, which at the time was criticized for the lack of social distancing and the risks involved with COVID and whatnot. Can I get into the the late edition? I guess this is Kardashian adjacent news, but Caitlyn Jenner's gal pal Sophia Hutchins would like everyone to know that she is not a lesbian, okay? No homo. <laughs> Her press release just says no homo. <laughs> oh, I didn't even wish you congratulations. Happy Pride, Chelsea. Oh, God, thanks. <laughs> I'm straight now, so keep it. Um, Such a good straight. Anyway, Sophia Hutchins, who's 25, took to her Instagram stories to let everyone know that she is not seeing the Olympian, who is 71. I guess there was a a story saying that they were together, and she just wrote, fake news, not a lesbian, fuck off. Seems a little weird during Pride. Yeah, and it's also like, it kind of seems like you've been afforded certain media attention and fame that has been very much directly linked to your rumored romance with your gal pal. Yeah, she then had a follow-up. She said, love the whole LGBT community. No cues, I see. No IA. <laughs> no allies, no. you fucking bitch. No. Not even thinking about them. Wait, I thought the A was asexual. Is it allies? I don't know. It's Pro- probably. Well, that's what the A and then the plus is. Anyway, but so tired of the rumors that I am romantically with Caitlyn. I am only ever with men and only ever have been. Stop the rumors. It's been years. She's 71. You're 25. You live together. Yeah. So you're just roomies. And Caitlyn's obviously in love with you. So Lord and I were talking about this... Dynamic? This dynamic earlier. And she's like, you know what this reminds me of? The bitter tears of Petra von Kant. Which, incidentally, we're going to be talking about next week because we are doing a whole episode about films about fashion designers, which is going to encompass Cruella, Bitter Tears, Phantom Thread, some other movies that we love. As always, thank you guys for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week. Like and subscribe. That's what people say. Oh, yeah. People are obsessed with rate, review, subscribe. Send us DMs. I love when people that listen to the pod DM us. It's really, it's charming to me. We're getting lots of Kardashian tea now this way, which is a nice change from people just DMing us being like, um, this halter top that Charlotte wore in this episode, where can I get it? Are you going to go find that specific Kate Spade skirt from 1998? I totally understand. Are you setting an eBay alert? Like, I want receipts. And I totally understand if people were DMing us and they're like, I like this look. What looks like that now that I could buy? Yeah. Anyway, a peek behind the curtain, guys. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Bye.